Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Oh, I'm starting today? I didn't even know that I was starting today. Um, big day. We have an interview coming up in a few minutes that we're going to play for you shortly. But first, one of the first things that we wanted to talk to our uh, guests that we're going to play for you in a moment about was um, this story out of North Andover, Massachusetts, which is a mere stone's throw from us. Um right down the street. We drove by a couple houses there when we were looking for this house, but they were too woodsy for Tom. I don't like super woodsy. That is correct. And I don't even know, was this today or last night when we found this out that, that, that they are going to be hanging or, or started to hang? They hung it this morning. Okay. So the meeting was last night. I think we were reading the news stories about it this morning. I think um, John and Wakefield mm-hmm. tagged us in the story. It was the first one I saw who brought it up. But yeah, uh, the town of North Andover will be flying the Palestinian flag from starting this morning up until December 7th. So By the, the way, John and Wakefield. Um, okay. Okay. Now I was thinking of Mark. John's not in media. No. Mark is okay. Mark is also in Wakefield. Um, but he is in media. And he is in media. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so this story, basically, they had been flying the Israeli flag um, as a memorial and tribute to the victims of this October 7th massacre and terror attack that occurred in Israel, the same way, like, you know, places lit up things with the French flag when the Bataclan massacre happened in France. Like, when something happens to other countries, sometimes we will, like, fly their flag or whatever as a tribute is something that I've observed that's a normal practice that one does. What one generally doesn't do is that fly the flag of the people who committed the massacre right. as a tribute to them. Right. Which and- a bunch of people in the United States have decided that we now do, that we do the tribute for the people who, the innocent victims of the massacre, and then to be fair for all sides, because you don't want to pick a side in the terrorist massacre, then you fly the terrorist flag. And 
you know what? I posted this on Twitter today and a bunch of morons in the replies, obviously. I mean, obviously some people are great in the replies, but there's people in the replies going, well, you know that Palestine and Hamas are two different things, right? right? And this is the Palestinian flag and not the Hamas flag. It's a distinction without a difference. We, correct. This is the flag of the ruling party of this the Palestinian the people, and you're flying it specifically as a response to an attack that those people committed. Right, which includes dead Americans. Dead Americans, kidnapped Americans. The, the, as we found out a few days ago from a Biden call readout, uh, this uh, one of the hostages is a three-year-old American citizen. So right. who's still in danger right now as of this moment, and you're flying the flag that's in support of the people who don't want to give him back. Exactly. So, <laughs> so but let's have okay, back up. We had such a wonderful talk with Andrew Clavin today, and we're going to touch on all this stuff in just minutes. You're going to seconds. You're going to hear it. <clears throat> he is a brilliant guy, and I, brilliant I, is the word. This is one of my the word. most enjoyable uh, interviews, conversations I have ever had. He was so he was just a delight, mm -hmm. and it just a, he touched it, on so many topics and and was really just fantastic to talk to. Intellectual heavy. I, I'm he is. Um, he has written a book, which we'll talk about as well. I would tell you, if you guys are like me and you don't read fiction or books or fiction, hardly ever, I am now reading this book, or it's being read to me on Audible, and it is, uh, it's, it, it's fantastic. It is, I am sucked in. It is fantastic. So uh, let's go now to our friend, third Clavin we've had on in uh, a year, by the way. And uh, it, it, it's just a joy. Andrew Clavin. Oh, crap. I just... Oh, no, no. Hold on. Like, like I said, Alice, Andrew Clavin. <laughs> are we always thrilled to talk to Andrew Clavin. You know Andrew Clavin, certainly from the Daily Wire podcast, uh, an author of many books, uh, some of which have turned into movies that you'd know as well, and author of the book, The House of Love and Death. Andrew Clavin, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's great to be here. Thanks. Um, you know, it's funny. I wanted to start somewhere different here. Today in Massachusetts, um, we've just had a town called North Andover decided it was would be prudent to fly the Palestinian flag for the next uh, for the next three weeks. And I thought, now how do I weave that into the the book that we're going to talk about, the House of Love and Death? And you did it for me in the voice of Isaac Wasserman, who says. I don't know this country anymore. Um, where? How did we get here in 2023 that we're in a place here where people are celebrating Hamas in leafy suburbs in New England and uh, across the country? What are, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing it, it is. It's, it's absolute wickedness. I mean, Hamas is a terrorist organization, a Nazi organization, a genocidal organization. The idea that you could develop some kind of two-state solution when one state wants to exterminate the other is absurd. The idea that somehow the Israelis are responsible for their own murders, uh, you know, uh, responsible for the atrocities committed against them is absurd. The idea, all of the ideas that are put forward, the idea of proportionality is absurd. If when when we were bombed at Pearl Harbor, we wiped two civilizations off the map uh, in response. You don't have a proportional response in war. War is a terrible, terrible thing to be avoided at all costs. But when you have to fight it, you fight it for complete victory. And that's what the Israelis are doing, should do and should continue to do, no matter how much pressure is brought against them. The 
ideas that have infiltrated the minds of the susceptible have been with us now over the course of 50 or 60 years. They have taken over our universities. They've taken over our uh, news outlets. They've taken over our entertainment industry. They've taken over our government. Uh, the, when I talk about the government, the permanent government, sometimes called the deep state, while conservatives sat around and thought that there was basically nothing to do but win the next congressional election in Ohio somewhere. Mm. Um, this is a cultural infection. It has been going on for decades. And now it has simply come to fruition with wokeness, which is just the kind of extreme case of what used to be called yeah. political correctness. This idea that somehow the moral order is exactly the opposite of what we thought it was, that only the this new uh, consciousness will relieve us of the power structures that have oppressed uh, everybody for so long, instead of the fact that the moral order is basically what it is. There are many failures that have gone along, but America has basically been a good and great country that has freed Every single human being who is free on the state of on the planet Earth mm. is free because of the United States of America. Every single living person who is living in political freedom today is there because of some kind of expenditure of American blood and, and treasure. So this, this is something that was predicted hundreds of years ago, that morality would be turned on its head once people lost track of God and of, of belief in God. And that's what's happened. And so. You know, it, it, it's frustrating to me to see a conservatism that is weak, that is not prepared to face this down, that is not prepared to take the long, slow response of cultural change that the left, which we have to congratulate them yeah. for, the left actually had the patience and the willingness and the time to, to destroy what was a, a functioning moral system that we had here. And they, they've done it over the course of 50, 60 years. It's going to take a long time to get it back, but we have to begin now. And every one of us who disagrees with this has to begin. There's no, there's no cowardice allowed at this point. There's no, oh, they're going to throw me off Twitter. Oh, they're going to call me down to HR. Yeah. Everybody has to speak up. But I didn't, and that makes sense that this was the end game to destroy, I guess, institutions. This is the way you do it with the rot from um, in decay. That this, I guess, the the push, the post Marxist push has. What I didn't see is the ghoulishness of American, pretty American coeds ripping down posters of kidnapped kids, um, American college students applauding the resistance after what could only be seen as a a. a, a day-long holocaust well right and we were just talking about this issue of the flag in this town which is really close to us and we had watched the board of selectmen video and there's like people clapping and cheering and you and i talked about it and you were like well would they put up they have a free speech policy and there was a supreme court case that said if that's the policy then you have to fly whatever flag and you were saying well would they fly a swastika would they fly a nazi flag i don't think they'd put it up and i said yeah but nobody would ask to fly the nazi flag because they'd be ashamed to put their name on the petition to do the Nazi flag and somehow people aren't ashamed of this they're cheering for it so it's like you say it's a sickness that's in the minds of all these seemingly regular people and I think um, you know you really got at it when you said that Republicans were focused on congressional elections and liberals were focused on culture and you know the conservatives weren't like writing books or making movies or anything else they were focused on you know winning all these seats in legislatures and not realizing that you can't legislate away that kind of mental sickness. And, and it's still going on. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, which has got one of the great op-ed pages, 
in the world is still arguing that this culture war stuff is uh, bad news and we shouldn't fight it. But of course, it's, it is what we should be fighting. It is. It's why people flock to Donald Trump, because he's not afraid mm -hmm. to speak up. But it's also, you know, it's also the only way forward. You can't let people destroy your culture and think you're going to somehow win political victories because you're simply not. And all of the things that we love, you know, free trade and f freedom of speech and all that, they don't just float in the middle of the air. They rest on the culture. They rest on an idea of what a human being is and 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 what a human being is is deserves by right namely the freedom to make his own choices to have his own opinions and to speak up and and in a in a world of freedom of speech you don't have to give freedom to the devil you know you when when people say oh well if you're going to worship christ we have to put up a st statue of satan no you don't <laughs> actually have to do that in the same way it's not banning books to keep uh, homosexual porn out of elementary schools i mean you have to have a moral order before you have everything else uh, as john adams said at the very beginning he said our constitution is only appropriate for uh, religious and moral people and if you lose that you lose everything there's no there's no way you're going to get that back and you know you can think you're going to have free trade but you're just not because <laughs> you know the, all of those things depend on on some kind of moral order that is above them all well uh, how do you do that in the community then if you're going to go out and meet your buddy for a beer tomorrow andrew and he mentions to you that he thinks it's great that day one of the resistance went fine and that they've got a three-year-old american hostage in gaza somewhere how do you can you can you countenance that person anymore? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the thing is, I, I have friends in all places in the political spectrum. I talk to people who have very different religious beliefs than me. But there is such a thing as evil. There's such a thing as, as something you can't, in fact, countenance. You know, almost more than a year ago when Joe Biden announced that he was uh, making sure, wanted to make sure that children could undergo what is hilariously in this morbid, hilariously, hilarious way is called the gender affirming care, namely the butchery of, of children's bodies to turn them into costumes of the opposite sex. I turned to my wife and said, eventually they're going to start killing Jews because anti-Semitism is the devil's flagpole. It's not that it's mm -hmm. the evil itself. It's the sign that evil has arisen. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's it, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, you said they wouldn't put up a Nazi flag. This is the Nazi flag. The, you know, there's, there's in fact, you know, I think as Douglas Murray said the other day, the Nazis at least tried to keep what they did secret because they knew it was wrong. Hamas brags about the things that they did, which are equally disgusting and equally immoral. No, you can't count this. This, this is the thing, you know, it, it, there is this wide spectrum of free speech and freedom of thought. And then there's something called evil and good. You know, I mean, you have to we have to agree that we are going to keep the wide spectrum of thought within the boundaries of those things that can be considered in some way good. There's no way that Hamas and its goals, not just not just its actions, but its actual goals, its stated goals can be considered part of the human project. They just, it just isn't. And and the people like Glenn Greenwald who are selling this, oh, suddenly uh, the right is against free speech. That's nonsense. It's not free speech to put pornography in a kindergarten. It's not free speech to declare that the Jews should be exterminated or any race should be exterminated. It is not free speech to support, which is essentially evil. We have to know the difference or we can't move forward. So the let's get right to the book now. It is the House of Love and Death. This is the latest uh, Cameron Winter um, book, and he is kind of a college professor. Um, 
Would you call him a hitman or a <laughs> spy? Well, I don't yeah, he's a government. He's a, a government. He was part of a government program that was essentially an assassination program, but it didn't actually assassinate people. He didn't actually assassinate people themselves. He arranged for bad guys to kill each other. Right. So if he could drop information on to one bad guy that would make him kill another bad guy, he would do that. Sometimes, of course, it got out of control and he had to do things himself. But now he has gotten out of the business. He is very disturbed about what's happening in the country and he doesn't know whether the things he did were justified or not um and and now he just wants to become part of ordinary life part of a culture that he loves which is you know he's a, a student of the romantic british poets yes. he he wants to go from being an anti-hero to being a hero and that's kind of the journey of the series not just of each book but of the series as he tries to figure out how in a society where the culture is crumbling around him how does he become the good guy and stop being a you know a sort of dark figure? So it's very early on in the book, but Margaret, his um, his shrink, is uh, talking to him. He's it seems like he's trying to cleanse his soul from some of the awful things that he's done, or at least find his way. And he tells her some very brutal things that he did, uh, including the the scene with the uh, with the other hitman, which is early on in the book, is. It made me very tense and very uncomfortable in a, in a training day movie kind of way where you could feel the writing is so good. You can feel the tenseness happening in the room. And I'm like every moment in that scene where he's not shooting the other bad guy, I said, damn it, Andrew Claven, you're going to make me wretch in the ground here, <laughs> begging him to just shoot, just shoot, just shoot. But anyway, he tells a story to his shrink and she's, of course, taken by him because this is a this is pretty manly stuff. This guy is as you said, coloring the room, you know, his story is so very alive where she, I'm supposed day to day, just goes through some mundane stuff. I was wondering if maybe is this the left's um, love of Hamas? Is this the same thing that they that? Wow, they're freedom fighters they're and they're excited and they're in they're in pitch battle with the forces of evil, Israel, in this in this case to them. Um, but is that fair to say that that's kind of what's happening? I know that you may not have meant it like that to have a, a, a jumbled bank shot that I just came up with. But is it fair to say that that's what's happening with her noticing him and falling for him? Well, the problem that he's he's facing is that in a culture where masculinity is outlawed only outlaws are masculine so we just went through we just went through uh, 20 years of what they call the second golden age of television where if you look at the shows that really succeeded they were all about manly outlaws the sopranos uh, the shield breaking bad if you follow if you go back and look at the first breaking bad episodes before he becomes a, a drug dealer what he is is a, a wimp uh, you know, his wife bullies him, his boss bullies him all the while. And it's his journey to becoming the guy who says, no, I'm the guy who knocks on your door and you're afraid of me. That's the journey of Breaking Bad. And what he's what uh, Winter is trying to do is reverse the process. He he wants to not become a wimp, but become a man who is somebody that uh, upholds what is right and upholds what is good and what's true. And that's a very difficult thing to be in a culture that has rejected not just uh, manhood, but the good and the the true. And so, yeah, his therapist is in this really interesting position. It, you know, the the complaint about therapy is, is that the idea is that the psychiatrist was going to be the new priest. But the psychiatrist was not equipped with a moral order 
to impose on the clients. It was always like, well, I just killed someone. Well, how do you feel about that? And that's kind of the joke about the Mm -hmm. Sopranos. You know, this guy who's essentially a monster is coming to a psychiatrist and she's saying, well, how do you feel about that? And now this woman uh, who is a very good therapist and a very nice person is put in the position of this guy is coming to her for priestly forgiveness. Forgive me for my sins. And she's thinking, I don't even know how to do this. I don't know how to forgive somebody for the kinds of things that this guy has done. And at the same time, yeah, she finds them very attractive and very appealing because she lives in this academic world. She had a sort of, you know, bland marriage of sort of satisfying but very dull marriage and here's that comes this guy out of another planet essentially and yeah she's she's kind of overwhelmed by him and trying to get him through a very very difficult transition that he's trying to make right i think it's sort of interesting too that in his um sort of new life as a normal citizen he's a poetry professor too and this romantic because it's sort of you know, this other end of the masculine idea the masculine romantic, like knightly ideal, I guess, um, that, that he's on the one hand, this sort of, I guess, the, the dark and dangerous archetype, and then the the romantic poet archetype, too, he's sort of got, got it all for the simmering romantic tension, I guess. Well, that's right. His boss in the in the service when he was doing this called him Poetry Boy because mm-hmm. he, couldn't, he couldn't understand his love. You know, what, what was he doing with all this poetry? But, you know, I, I, I wrote I've written a book about the British romantic poets uh, called The Truth and Beauty. And one of the things that I put forward and I'm not the first person to put this forward by any means is that the society around them had fallen apart. Uh, people had lost their religion. People had stopped believing in the government. The French Revolution had swept away or was supposed to have swept away all the injustices of the past. It was a, a time very, very much like today when the ideas that were supposed to bring a new society instead brought bloodshed and world war and had failed utterly. And what the romantic British poets were trying to do is rebuild the moral structure of the society they lived in. And so he is in that situation and, and Winter is sort of the last romantic trying to rebuild something that's falling apart all around him. And so it's a, a kind of a clear path for him to like these poets, but he doesn't know whether he can impose their ideas on the world. And he's working in a leftist university where he's constantly under fire simply for teaching the poetry of dead white men. Uh, so it's he's all, all the structures have fallen apart around him. Right. And that's, I mean, that's without even, that's sort of the backdrop to the story. But then, you know, like Tom was saying, the story itself also just pulls you in so much. And I remember when he was reading the first book out of this series, When Christmas Comes, a couple of years ago, and um, Tom, uh, he's not going to want me to say this out loud, but he's not that big a reader, to be Mm. totally honest. But he was like, I actually like this book and I can't stop. And there's all these (laughs) twists and turns. And, you know, it's it's really, truly a mystery, too. And um, neither of us has totally finished the book. I'm ahead right now of Tom in the book. But um, but it's it's really a great mystery plot, too. And and ties into a lot of these same like cultural tensions that we were talking about, too, where you know, there's sort of he goes to this town and there's all these different figures with different motivations and, um, you know, their own they're bringing their own biases to the situation of, of this murder. And he kind of just wants to know what happened. And so the, the path of him figuring that out is sort of navigating all these same issues that we're dealing with in our society, too. 
Yeah, because he's dealing. It's it's interesting to me, like he's he's dealing with these murders that took place in this house and his entire family almost is wiped mm-hmm. out. Uh, and and as he begins to get into the life of the town where this house uh, is placed, he begins to find that there's corruption at the top of every institution, uh, <laughs> even to Washington, D.C., which affects the people in this little place. And so it's kind of, you know, he finds the failure of authority everywhere from from fathers over sons to, uh, you know, heads of families, to heads of institutions, heads of law enforcement. All of these people uh, are broken. All of these institutions are broken. And so he is in this position of sort of saying, well, how do you get to justice? How do you get to um the, how do you right the wrongs that are being done and solve the mysteries that are being posed when there's nothing in the society left that supports those actions? And um, and so that's I've, I tr- I've tried to construct, you know, I've reached a point in my career where you sort of are summing up. You're sort of saying, well, why did I go into this business in, to begin with? You know, why did I write mysteries instead of science fiction? Why did I uh, deal with the kinds of characters I dealt with? And so he's kind of dealing with a lot of the things that I began writing about from the very beginning. I mean, I became a mystery writer after reading uh, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe novels, which are about a guy in corrupt Los Angeles who basically is a knight inside. He carries a, a, the, the ideal of chivalry inside him. Um, Raymond Chandler famously wrote this fa- famous off-quoted line, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, which is where we get the <laughs> phrase mean streets. And so this is, you know, winter is sort of the modern incarnation of this guy who's trying to impose some kind of values on a society that's, you know, obviously topsy-turvy. Well, this, in like Al said, I, I, I rarely read fiction. Actually, when you write fiction is when I seem to read fiction. <laughs> but the thing is, is in that listeners to the radio show, especially, Especially that on WTIC, where people are listening to this, um, this isn't fiction. These characters, this may be a, a story that came out of Andrew Clavin's mind, but we know all of these characters. The um, the detective, I know that guy. That guy who's overly sensitive to race, who's a stick in the mud, who's a cynic, who's a bully. I mean, that guy absolutely exists. And I almost feel like since I I talk like you do, Andrew, I talk uh, about current events constantly. Do you know that that's going to be triggering some of us knowing these people like like the, the, that guy could be anybody in our politics, anybody at a board of ed meeting who's snide and, and maybe something happens later. I'm sure a lot happens later because I'm just <laughs> there. He just dropped him off in the woods. So I'm, I'm only that far into the book. Um, but uh, are, are do you know that people when they're reading this book are going to recognize your characters as people in their world? Well, you hope so. You're writing characters who you hope will come to life and be real. And one of the things that's kind of funny since, uh, you know, uh, listening to you guys as comes to mind, you know, when you write fiction, you're you're very aware that women read fiction are, are the main readers of fiction because men always look at fiction and think, what's this for? What do I do with this? How do I use this? And so I try very hard to write fiction that both sexes, just so you know, there are only two of them. Uh, but <laughs> I, I try, I try to write so that, that both sexes can see, Oh yeah, this is something that I want to know about and I want to experience because you know, I think women are more open to dealing with character, more open to dealing with social interaction. And men want to know what's going on. What am I learning from this? What What is this? How is this helping me? And so I try to do it both. You know, I mean, I don't want to leave anybody behind. I want to give you something where you say, oh, I, I get it. Now that I've read this, I see the world in a different way. And And the way you do that is to 
as far as I'm concerned, is to create totally three-dimensional characters and put them in situations that challenge them and bring their characters to the surface. And so that's that's what I try to do with every book. So I have a I would think that if I was an author and I could never do what you did do all because every character is already so deep. You're so descriptive. There's so much going on. Every character is both so noble, so multi-layered and so wretched so far um that you know, it just seems like that's why writers toil through stuff because, man, these are heavy. Do you ever set up characters as um, um, as kind of st straw men to break down because of the kind of person you think is a jerk? Like I, with, <laughs> with this detective right now in the story, I want something bad to happen to him very, very badly. Do you ever do that? <laughs> no, I, I actually... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Don't. I actually let, try to let each person live and breathe and, and operate out of his own motives. I trust my readers to have a moral sense to know when somebody is a bad guy. And, when, yeah. and, and they're, you know, they're lovable bad guys and people who are bad. You know, there are people in this book who do terrible things but try are actually not bad people they do them for for reasons that we all can identify with we all have urges and you know needs and desires that we allow to control us sometimes uh, and then there are other people who are operating at a completely corrupt level i have to trust my readers to know the difference because my job is to create them all as if i were them you know my my job is to say what's this guy thinking why is he able to look in the mirror in the morning and like himself because because people do, you know, it is a really, I mean, I watch the news all the time and I see how dishonest our news media yeah. is. And I do sometimes think, how do I, you know, I mean, I, I try, I work so hard to make every word I say, if, even if I'm mistaken, at least it's truly what I'm thinking. It's truly what I see. Even if what I see offends me, even if what I see is goes against what I want to be there. I try to say all those things. I don't understand how some people go to work uh, and, and lie, essentially, and just say, you know, yeah, I'm, I, I know that's the truth, but I'm not going to tell them that because that's not what I want them to hear. And that, that seems to be the way a lot of our news media works. And so when I write that character, when I write that dishonest news person, I don't write him from my point of view. I write him from his point of view. Huh. And I try to make sure that I understand why he's this this guy in my book is doing what he's doing. So at least when I see that guy on TV, I think I know him better. Uh, I understand the world a little bit better. And I can maneuver in the world a little bit better because actually the, the funny thing is, is look, there, there there's true evil in the world and you have to hate that evil. But you very rarely have to hate people. You know, 
people are are oftentimes sad. Sometimes the devil carries them away. And, and it, you know, you sort of have to grieve for them because it could happen to any of us. We're all broken and we're all, you know, subject to corruption. Uh, so that's the way I try to write. I try to write from that highest place in myself where, you know, I'm conscious of other people's souls and their failings. But no, I, I try not to put straw men in there who <laughs> you're just sitting there, wait, you know, who just are, are you're sitting there waiting for them to be targeted, you know. Uh, it's funny that you say that because it's almost, I mean, of course, I think people don't read or write fiction because they think fiction's like a lie, but because it's true in some other right. sense. But it seems like right now in the publishing industry and in fiction in particular, it's that a lot of people are dead set on only writing and publishing things that are artificial or a lot and making sure that things that are true don't get published. I mean, there's, it seems like once a week, there's a story of some book being canceled because it's written from a white savior complex or the person's the wrong race who wrote it, or they didn't realize how, I mean, and for the most part, these are all people who are trying to write very woke books um, and they're canceling each other because, you know, they don't realize how problematic their premise is or whatever. And, and it's, it's, I it makes me sad because I don't know how in that kind of environment any kind of creativity or you know truth telling within fiction can happen if authors are all you know falling over themselves and afraid that what they're going to write is going to get them permanently canceled off the face of the earth um, and it, I mean like is that something you're seeing out there too in in writing Oh my God! It's like it's like it genuinely is. I think it's Elon Musk who calls it a mind virus. Uh, it's it's it has infiltrated publishing, and that's why everything is garbage. I mean, if, <laughs> if you look, if, you know, seriously, if you look at the movies, I've never I've never actually quite experienced this in a long lifetime. I've never experienced this uh, kind of lacuna this emptiness in the culture <laughs> where everything is crap i mean you sit there and you turn on you know the tv and you watch a movie and they're just one bad movie after another you read the books they're boring uh but but this is a, a real thing that's really happening where you get editorial comments like take this out it's offensive or uh, i got one that said uh, you re referred to this woman as co having coffee colored skin and this is deeply offensive because slaves had to pick coffee and i thought well guess what they picked something that was the color of this woman's skin so, so, so it's you know so you're you're dealing with this and and even i and i'm i'm in a fairly good situation where i'm even i have had to just say i'm not cutting this out i'm not changing this you are wrong and I am right. And I, this is the way life is. This is the way people think. And in, and in order to create living characters, uh, you just have to fight them. And, and I don't know how long I'll be able to hold out. I mean, hopefully, uh, if I have nowhere else to go, the Daily Wire will publish my stuff because it, it, it genuinely is a mind virus. Now you have to hope like, like most viruses, it will pass away. I, I think it will. I believe it will. But, um, you know, in, in terms of creating this, series i will not change a single word for these reasons i'll i'll change words you know there have been times when somebody has said to me this is too political and i've thought yes that's true because it's not a political tome it's a novel and mm -hmm. i i want to take that out but i will never ever change a word a comma of of my writing to satisfy what somebody thinks is is a moral order that doesn't exist uh, i will never say that a man can become a woman and which was you know in in this book there's a mild trace of just something that's going on in the culture uh with um 
uh, transgenderism, or as I call it, induced transgenderism, because these are not truly transgender people. These are people who've been convinced that right. they should be transgender. Um, and and I I had to say, I'm not cutting this out. You know, it's just it's just not happening. But think about that. You know, I'm, I'm in a peculiar position. Uh, I, I can afford to do it. Uh, I would do it anyway. I happen to know I would do it anyway because I did it in Hollywood and lost my career. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but most people most people have given up a lot to and tried very hard to become a published author, and they do, they're afraid. You know, they're afraid not to toe the line, and it makes their work garbage. And because the world is not this way, the world is not woke. The world is not that's not any kind of reality. So you're absolutely right. You know, this, just, just say I'm going to depict people the way they are, the way I see them. It will be my vision, but it will be a fair vision where each person has his own motivations and and, and, out, and outlook. Um, that's a hard thing to to do, and it's it's really they're even going back and editing out things from from classic authors hmm. like P.G. Woodhouse and uh, you know and um, uh, Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl, yeah. yeah. That, that, yeah, which is just uh, so offensive to me uh, and and sinful, really, because mm-hmm. these people were great writers who had a muse who told them what to write like I do. And they're just saying, oh, yeah, but our sensitivities outweigh your muse, your creativity, your art, uh, because we know what's better. Right. So, yeah, it's a fight. It's a real fight. I think yeah. we can learn uh, from the movie Predator when they say this is my, this is my level of intellectual <laughs> thought, by the way. Yeah, I, I love that movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they, when they say if it bleeds, we can kill it. It's like, you know, Andrew, you've been doing this for so long in writing what you want to like, write that you don't bleed so they they don't think they can kill it <laughs> yeah no it, it, it is i mean it's it's interest it's an interesting situation to be in because i already know like i said you know i lo- i believe that i can't prove this but i believe i lost my career in hollywood because of saying the things that i wanted to say and speaking out loud and that was a, you know it was a genuine economic uh blowback for me a really hard hard thing but I kind of I never questioned myself about it. I never thought, you know, you write to tell the truth. That's why you write. That's why you put words on paper. I don't write to please some fool who was taught by a, another fool at a university uh, that all the, the moral order is the opposite of what it is. You know. Well, and I, I'm so glad you have because it does like create space, I think, for more people to do that too. just the fact that it exists. And and these are genuinely great books too they're not you know i think sometimes conservatives do things you know for the sake of standing up to the woke and yeah. you know and and that doesn't hold up necessarily either um you know it has to be created you know by the person making it because they're they're trying to make something good and and these are you know fantastic books to read but yeah i mean talking about how they're going back and editing these older authors too is even if you know we decide that such and such a book from the past was like racist or bad or or that the author's vision was flawed in some way you know leaving the book as it stands is so important just to just to even see the difference between what we think now and people did in the past, because, um, you know, I think people lack so much perspective now on the ways people thought and, and acted. And, and my first experience was seeing a book that had been edited. And this actually happened a fairly long time ago was I read Dr. Doolittle as a kid. And in Dr. Doolittle, there's a character who's an African prince who wants to become white. 
And then I reread the book later in a newer edition, and that whole section of the book, which was pretty important to the plot, actually, was missing from the book. None of it happened. And I was so confused. And it took me a while to realize that that was why and that happened because I was a kid. And I didn't, I, it didn't even occur to me that somebody would like take that out for that reason, that it was, you know, considered problematic. But it marks such a difference in our sensibilities now. And, you know, when people go around saying, like, this is racist, that's racist, we need to take Huckleberry Finn out, we need to take To Kill a Mockingbird out. And people don't, I think, people don't even have a sense that the of the racism or the oppression that existed at the times that those books were written or the perceptions that people had. And then they can go around believing that, you know, there's some kind of serious racism or oppression happening now. They can't see how far we've come if they have no depictions of what thing of what things existed in the past. And I think it's, it's a perspective that gets lost so quickly. It's, you know, people don't understand, and this is, I think, especially true in America, it's less true in Europe, but people don't understand what art is for. Yeah. Art is a record of the human experience in time. And so it's, you know, it's it's just like having mathematic textbooks, so we don't have to learn mathematics over and over again. Mm. Art gives you the perspective of what it's like to have been alive at any given moment. So we can see what's eternal and what changes and how people, you know, like questions, questions of real import, like how could a good and great man like George Washington not have realized that his slaves wanted to be free? That's a really important question. You know, I think that that's something we should deal with. And you don't cut it out. Simply, you don't make turn Washington into a villain when he was a hero. And you don't turn him into a guy who, you know, you don't whitewash the fact that he didn't understand that about his slaves, you tell the whole story. This is the only record we have of what it's like to be a human being. So to, for these no-talent, small-minded, pinch-hearted sensitivity readers to edit these guys is as if somebody had visited us, a great genius visited us from back in time, and they just said, oh, but don't tell us what you want to tell us. Only tell us what we want you to tell us. You know, we're, we're not going to let you speak what you saw uh, for yourself. And so, you know, when when Shakespeare speaks, you shut up and you listen to Shakespeare because he's the greatest mind that ever put pen to paper. You don't tell Shakespeare that, you know, this is where we get the word boulderizing is because a guy named Boulder edited the sex out of Shakespeare because he thought that he was more moral than Shakespeare. And so, uh, you know. When these guys using their muse, using their inspiration, come and tell us what it was to be there, some of it's going to make us uncomfortable because human beings do uncomfortable things. But just remember, I, I just keep telling this to all the lefties, you know, every single one of you who supported abortion is going to seem like a demon in about 50 years. Everybody who said you should pull down a statue who supported abortion, once the science is settled, then we understand that these are human beings you've killed. You are going to be the next guy. So have some compassion on the past. So the future will have some compassion on you because all of us are, are traveling in darkness and, and trying to find our way. And some of these people were perfectly moral and some of them were not perfectly moral. There are also great writers who were immoral, uh, like like Byron, like Shelley, like, uh, you know, the Marquis de Sade, who ha also have something to tell us because of the greatness of their writing. And, and that's that's what we have. That's the only record we have of the human race. 
His name is Andrew Clavin. He is the author of The House of Love and Death. Uh, we'll tweet out some links where you can get it. You can get it on Amazon and The Daily Wire. You can also, you should be listening to the D Andrew Clavin show on, um, on The Daily Wire as well. Uh, Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I love the book so far. It is, it is fiction for a nonfiction fan because I see what you're up to. I know these people. <laughs> I know these people. I want heads to roll before this thing is over in this book. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I, I like writing fiction for people who don't usually read fiction, actually. I think that's a, a great thing. And and hopefully for people who also like fiction. So I, I appreciate it. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. Uh, I, I, I found him to be uh, just an absolute delight. And I think this is the, the second or third time that I've talked to him. And I, I'm I, the, the guy's great. He's, he's a great and thorough thinker. Some of I, I like through him. Um, he turned all our bad questions into really exactly. great responses. <laughs> dirt balls that were four feet outside, and he knocked them all out of the park. I, I I can't say enough about the guy. And he's just he's comfortable to talk to. He's collegial. He's he's just. He's, I, I can't say enough about him. I buy the book, please. If you're going to buy a book, there's, I, I'm not a book guy, as you guys know. I, I have. Not. He also has a mystery series that's like for kids too that I was looking at online because I was looking at his um, books on Amazon when we were um, looking this one up. So yeah, he's he's got lots of great writing out there, and like you said, Is movies. That and true, Steve from Merrimack. He substituted for oh that okay. He he really did. It must have been recently, right? That's interesting. For Rush Limbaugh, because you didn't say actually what Steve said in the chat and people listening. I said he substituted for Rush. I think that you didn't say Rush. You said he substituted for Rush. You started to say Rush, but you didn't finish saying it. Oh, uh, okay. Rush <laughs> Limbaugh. Okay. Um. Why wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But but he makes sense. It, I kind of. I would sometime I'd like to to interview him again. He does seem like to me that he's done actual real radio as a host. Mm -hmm. He just has that where it feels like he's he's got that. But yeah. So anyway, I'm pleased with today. The, today's a mess in the fact that there are um, swastikas in North Andover isn't great. But you know, fine. Isn't it interesting how like the swastikas that people find like written on playgrounds, etc. Oh, when there's like. One that probably some teenager carved to yes. just get a rise out of people under the underside of a desk somewhere or in a middle school bathroom stall. Then then we have to have the whole town have a reckoning and ha have a candlelight vigil for the people who had to witness it. And But they can fly a flag that is literally associated with a genocide that people are trying to commit right now. And that's just a-okay and yeah. fine. So, there you go. All right. Should we do this chat chat, Alice? Yes, let's there's jump a, to there's the There's other chat stuff chat. to talk about, including the senator who wanted to get in a fist, fist fight. But Teddy's been a, it's, it's just been an action-packed day. And um, and I, I and I think we kind of hit the news of the day with Clavin. And, mm -hmm. So, what are you going to say? By the way, he is the father of Faith Moore, who he had on a mm -hmm. couple of days and ago. And Spencer Clavin, who Spencer's we had Clavin. on towards the beginning exactly. of this year. Um, all Clavens go slumming in the burn barrel, and we appreciate it. <laughs> um, okay. Are you ready? I was born ready? I'm so ready. Okay. Here we go. Anonymous, which means it could be Steve in Gloucester, who I thought you were talking about first when you went to burn barrel. All right. 
Hey, Alice, on a recent podcast, you had mentioned going to the Azorian in Gloucester, and I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with you more on how amazing the food is there. It is an underrated gem in Gloucester, and uh, so I'm about a block and a half, two blocks away from there, and I try mm-hmm. to go once every couple of months because their menu is solid. They're and, so good. Uh, Tom, you had also mentioned uh, going to the Yellow Sub in yep. Gloucester, which is right around the corner from me. And, uh, you know, again, you picked out a gem of a place when it comes to eating sandwiches in Gloucester. But I will say this, Tom, one night you have to dust off that money that you have hidden under the mattress and you have to take Alice to Tono in Gloucester, T-O-N-N-O. You had mentioned seafood, you had mentioned, uh, you know, various dishes that you like. And I think you'll find that there. A little pricey, but I know you have the money. So definitely get a babysitter and uh, take Alice to a nice, enjoyable night on the town. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you, Steve. As a matter of fact, yeah, that the Yellow Submarine place was a great place. I had a lovely breakfast when my daughter was playing softball. Uh, it was a doubleheader, so I caught the other game. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I love that area in Gloucester, right in the middle where all the action is. As a matter of fact, my mother used to live in Gloucester, Steve. You'll have you know, in... Um, in sometime in the 2000s, I think, right around 2001, mm-hmm. 2002. Okay, Tono Restaurant Gloucester. Uh oh, it's on, it's going it's doing scheduled maintenance. Uh oh, menus. Let's see. I just want to see if they have tripe. Uh oh, scheduled maintenance. Oh no. Okay, Tono. All right, somebody else give me the. You know scheduled. what? Why don't we? Why don't you do this? Are people later. becoming angry? Can you feel them growing angry? I'm angry. Oh, I see. I, see. <laughs> I just want to see if they have tripe. Why don't you check another time? Okay, I'm going to check another time. How about that? Yes. Uh, all right. Oh, here we go. SFM, advice for SFG. Mm-hmm. To Steve. This is a... Uh, sh- this is Steve to Steve advice. Wow. Burn Barrel Shuttle Diplomacy with <laughs> the Steves. Hi. Steve from Aramac. Hey, Steve. Um, Steve from Gloucester. Uh, you're seeking... Advice for the Kirk Minahan show from Tom. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I, you can seek advice from him, but I'll give you my own advice. Don't snort half a Peru like Tom obviously did before he came in shot out of a can. And the other thing I don't want you to do is don't keep trying to redirect the conversation to people you want to have killed. Okay. <laughs> it was the greatest. It was the greatest. Oh, man. And also, Steve, don't talk it up too much. You don't want to get reneged. Okay? Oh, yeah. anyway, thank you. Bye. The last one is definitely a good point. Definitely a good point. I was not indeed on any, um, any what's it called, those kind of drugs that hype Uppers? Up. I was not on any uppers or anything at all uh, that day. Matter of fact, I was deprived of my energy because of the kids. But, but uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what happened in there. I don't know if you'll get sucked into the same vortex I was, or, or, or what happened, Steve. I would just say certainly try to be yourself, and uh, like I said before, and, and uh, uh, and have fun. You know what? Have fun. Say exactly what you want to say, and then turn off all of your mentions in social media because. Most of the Minifans, and I, I think these people. Oh, you're you are a Minifan, Steve. So, but in but they're not overly motivated. Most of them to say things to make you feel good is what I found. And so, if you're if you're impervious to that, that's good. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I was just craving enough to just love adore the attention. You know, <laughs> Tom loves all attention. Yeah, Good all attention was fun, yeah. especially then. And, and but uh, if not, then you know whatever. But the, then again. There are some nice, there are some good, civilized, nice people who reach out. Uh, I find all the men of fans to be lovely. <sighs> duplicitous. I do. It's duplicitous, right? Duplicitous. Duplicitous, yeah. Two of the things. <laughs> Dr. Cheswick. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tom. Yeah. <clears throat> who knew that Alice was a fan of Faces of Death and all of that genre of film? Is that making? true? Man. Oh, yes, it is true. <laughs> How did you not know this when you married her? Boy. It's so funny. <laughs> that's that real that's... dark, dark stuff. It is dark stuff. And now, you know, you're, Dr. Cheswick, that is a great reference. And you're right. In Faces of Death in 1987, a whole bunch of us know felt, I'll show it to you later. You'll love it. You'll love it, Alice. You'll get <laughs> I don't hot know and bothered that I will. watching it. You will, <laughs> definitely. True. But uh, we watched it w- when I was like 14 or whatever, and uh, it changed us. <laughs> no. It makes you not want to go out in the street. The, okay. It's a b- bad situation. I did see somebody in a user group uh, or Facebook group talking about that movie and saying, oh, I started watching it, then we stopped. And it's like, no, if you're a Gen Xer, you should have seen that movie and you should be disturbed and more dead than other people. I think that's, seeing that, I think, shaped us up to be less wussified than subsequent generations. Mm. SFM. Okay, Steve from Merriman. Alice F. Buckley. Oh, God, I love his Alice F. Buckley impression. Equals, so do I. Vince Lombardi. (laughs) Vince Lombardi, wow. Hi, Steve from Merrimack. Steve. Uh, I was fascinated today when the subject of the New England Patriots and Mac Jones and all that stuff came up. And uh, Alice F. Buckley, who, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, is the Vince Lombardi of the Burn Barrel podcast. <laughs> Do you know who Vince Lombardi is? I know that the trophy's named after him. Okay, there you go. He was, he was a, <laughs> I'm assuming he had something he to do coach. with football. Yes. Started making pronouncements like, oh, I've been saying this to anybody who'll listen. Uh, it's true. Years. I have been saying that. I've said this and a I haven't thousand watched any times. Stop stepping on my friend's Sorry, thing. I am stepping on, but this is true. I've been saying this to you, and I haven't even watched games. I haven't watched any games. You've been giving hot sports takes? <laughs> I've been saying this to you. I'm like, why do people keep saying Mac Jones is so great, and he's losing games all the time, apparently? You know, the Patriots aren't good. Mac Jones is just not good. And yada, yada, yada. Alice, I, I think you know that I'm a very loyal listener of this yes. program. Mm-hmm. I don't think you've ever uttered a word about Mac Jones Correct. or the Patriots. Correct. It was, what are you talking about? Yes. Jesus. And then I do talk my, outside I, I, of this show. That, no, you don't. <laughs> I imagine you being one of, like, one of those wives. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you go to a Super Bowl party and there's a player on one of the teams who's had like the, the, the career year, the season of his life. He's broken all these records. You know, he's, he's just done incredibly well. Like no yeah. one's ever played the position before. And then he has a bad game in the Super Bowl mm-hmm. or the, you know, the defensive scheme was totally focused on him and mm-hmm. he doesn't play, doesn't play very well. And I just imagine Alice being like one of those wives that I've experienced who sits there and goes, Oh my God. I thought you said this guy was good. He's oh, terrible. Yes. Correct. Oh, he sucks. You guys are so correct. silly. Talking about this guy, um, he couldn't make my son's high school football team. Mm. Oh God! I acknowledge I know but nothing I, about football. I do so. enjoy you, Alex. Thank and, you. Uh, um, thank you. I do Bye-bye. fully acknowledge that I don't know anything about football. So I don't know. That's no, all my that football a, takes are caveated that was a with spot that. Spot on but... depiction of you. 
no doubt. We That's gotta, true. Maybe, I don't know anything about it, but all I know about it is that people have been saying for three years that he's really good, but it always comes after, well, we didn't win this game, but. Maybe we'll go down the, uh, the uh, hen house and watch a game. It's a really good, it's a hen house, right? Mm-hmm. It's a really good setup to watch a game. Just FYI, Alice. And right down the street. Well, that sounds fun. Maybe we'll do that sometime. <laughs> I don't know what I... So you can just let it go and get to the whatever. Okay. Well, if you want to join us for the live how chat... How do people... How do humans answer when somebody <laughs> suggests we go to the hen house? Well, well, that sounds fun. Perhaps we'll have <laughs> lagers and... <laughs> A bowl of nuts. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, like, you've never asked me to go out and watch a game with you before. It so. seems to me Mackenzie Jones is <laughs> underrated. I don't know. If you want to put your takes into the chat chat, you can do that at burnbarrelpodcast.com. Say la vie. Great to have you. This is my wife and co-host, Alice. I th- Hi. Did you speak Hi. to Andrew before? I don't think I did speak to Andrew before. We just spoke to Faith, though, actually, last week. So. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. oh, that's great. She was great. She's utterly charming. I know. You won't get that today, but she, well, she is. <laughs> no, no, no question about it. <laughs> Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.